You're listening to Legal Skinny Podcast with Trisha Burita. I'm a 15-year licensed practicing attorney in the state of Texas. I created Legal Skinny because when I've been invited to do educational seminars on different subjects in employment law, employers and HR professionals would often ask me, where can they find out a little more information on this or a little more information on that? Look, I get it. There's a lot of resources out there, but sometimes it's confusing and people are so busy. Sometimes people have only 30 or 15 or maybe even five minutes in their day to devote to learning something new. On this podcast, you'll hear me have discussions and interviews on topics relevant to employers. Disclaimer though, Legal Skinny is for entertainment and informational purposes only, not meant to provide legal advice and doesn't create an attorney-client relationship. Also remember, laws change or they differ by jurisdiction. So this is not a substitute for seeking legal counsel in your jurisdiction on the current law applicable to you. So I wrote a Legal Skinny blog post talking about disasters just this past summer. That blog post was inspired off of, you know, an impending hurricane headed towards the Texas coast. Obviously, disasters have been top of mind over the course of this past year. Because in the past, whether we've watched from far or in our own backyards, wildfires on the West Coast, snowstorms in the Midwest and East Coast, tornadoes, or whatever, the new disaster that every person in this world has been faced with is this COVID-19 pandemic. So what happens when you add a disaster on a disaster? Well, it's not good, folks. (laughs) It's not pretty. And that is exactly what's happening in my home state of Texas this week. My friend from Ohio texted me and and she said, hey, I have a friend in the Ukraine who is asking me, what is going on in Texas? (laughs) Yep. So uh, we're making the news in Ukraine. Uh, Yay. That means this is truly an epic fail of worldwide proportions. Awesome. And to all my friends in other states, especially you Midwest and Northeast folks, saying, wow, you know, Texans really can't hack the cold. Just hold up a second there. So whether you're on the outside looking in or you're in this disaster with me as a fellow Texan, this isn't a matter of us not knowing how to tough it out through little snow and ice. You see, Texans, they're tough. They have a lot of grit. I mean, they deal with over 100 degrees in the summer months on the daily, and they just work through it. All the fuss is because, well, Texas has a power problem. Why and how did all this happen? Hmm. Let's see if I can summarize briefly why there's a lot of finger pointing going on. First off, to really understand, you have to understand something about Texas. You see, Texans, and I'm only a first-generation born Texan, as my parents are both from New York. But Texans, they like their independence. They like being Texans. They like other Texans. They like Texas history. Texans like buying Texas stuff. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's such a well-known deal that the few times I've, I've, I've gotten to see Scott McClellan, who is a genius marketer at the popular grocery store, H-E-B, um, inspiring many of their great marketing ideas. Um, He's not a Texan himself, but if you if you heard him speak, you know, he he talks about this. He says he goes out of his way to market to Texans in this way. So much that, you know, he realized he could take tortilla chips, 
remake the chips into the shape of Texas, and Texans will buy it over the regular chips, even if it costs a little more. I mean, HEB even created a Texas Best Contest so that they could find other Texans that make products. And if you win the contest, HEB distributes and creates your product to go in their stores, all of their stores um, in the area. Because Texans like buying other Texan stuff. So it's a win-win for HEB. If you are in Texas and you buy a Miller Lite beer, do you know, chances are, if you uh, turn that bottle over, on the back, it's going to say made in Texas. Now, I had, a, I had a good friend from Milwaukee um, that when he, he came to Texas, uh, he almost fell out of his chair because he was downright offended when he realized um, that, yeah, uh, it said made in Texas on the back of a Miller Lite beer. See, I guess most everywhere else, Miller beer uh, says, you know, made in w Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And, and they're pretty proud of that. So uh, it, it was quite a bit of a shock for him. But why would Miller Lite and Bud Light set up a place brewing factories in uh, uh, brewing beer um, in factories in Texas? So they could legit market made in Texas. And why does that matter? Because Texans love Texas and most all things made in Texas. Okay, so I totally digress there, but possibly because I'm tired from the ridiculous situation we find ourselves in this week in Texas, where for days now in freezing temps, you know, when my power went out, I uh, came back on briefly, then went out again, um, you know, watching, you know, friends uh, struggle with the same situation or pipes bursting and, and all the scary stories of things going on and, and vulnerable individuals and families out there struggling. I mean, until this week, I may have told you jokingly, the Texans are so independent, right, um, and loving all things Texas, that they have their own power grid. You know, so they don't have to answer to anyone if they don't want to. <laughs> well, this is true. It's not really funny anymore. See, part of having your own power grid is to get further away from those pesky federal regulators. Now, the corporation running the Texas grid is ERCOT, which manages the flow of electric power on the Texas Interconnection Supplies Power to more than 25 million Texas customers, representing 90% of the state's electrical load. ERCOT, which stands for Electric Reliability Council of Texas, or as many angry Texans are renaming it this week, Electric Unreliable Council of Texas, which is, um, they're having a lot of problems explaining why this electrical grid of power for Texans is failing, causing the disaster you may be watching unfold. Large amounts of power outages, uh, so not controlled blackouts for many hours, broken water pipes, and no water. If you have water, there the, the there's orders that you have to boil your water in order to drink it. And, and because it's not deemed safe to drink, you know, which presents another problem when you have no power to boil the water. <laughs> I mean, uh, a hospital struggling because they don't have access to water. I mean, it's, it's bad. Governor Abbott's called for an investigation you know, of ERCOT, uh, where I'm sure all, you know, well, this will be examined and we'll see how that all plays out. But um, who will take the fall? I don't know. So while I could bring an engineer on here and we could have an in-depth discussion about the Texas electrical system problem, which is, you know, tons of news sources are trying to cover all of that. I want to talk about something a little different. All of this really reminds me of how important it is for companies and leaders to explore 
disaster planning in the non-emergent times. So this week, when I had no power, and it was in the teens outside with no heat in my house, I looked at my two five-year-old kiddos and thought, dang, could I have planned better for this? I mean, how do you plan for, you know, different disasters or the unknown disaster? Hmm. I mean, first off, let's all recognize there's only so much you can do, especially given that, you know, it's a disaster because of the unforeseenness of it all usually, or the gravity of the event, right? But what could you do? From a personal level, you know, people, um, people here on, on, on the coast, on the Gulf Coast, you know, they're beaten over the head every summer with a reminder to prepare for hurricane season. So, you know, people go out, they buy bottled water and canned foods, et cetera. The more organized or even affluent, you know, one might be, they may have a generator. So they buy gasoline and they fill up their cars, you know, with gas because, you know, we've seen shortages on gas in the aftermath of a hurricane, you know, and during evacuations. But I mean, how does this all translate to how you plan for disasters in your company? I mean, what's the equivalent of canned food and bottled water that you've stored up for no matter what disaster comes through, you know, your door of your business? When the pandemic hit, you know, <laughs> do you know what people here did on the Gulf Coast? Um, they bought bottled water and canned foods <laughs> and oh, and, and toilet paper, right? For some reason. But looking back, do you know, you know, how much bottled water helped if you got COVID or if you were in quarantine? Not much, people. Not much. The water was not the problem. And I don't know anyone that ran out of toilet paper. People are creatures of habit. And in times of crisis, they do what they know, you know, they should do based on what they've experienced before. So, I mean, I'd like to ask you, if you, if you, if you bought that bottle of water or TP and another pandemic hits us, if you were able to only buy two things, would either of them be toilet paper or bottle of water now, now that you know what you know, you know, what would be your two things if you could only get two things in preparation for another pandemic? Because of this creature of habit nature, I, I mean, I do not think it's a good idea to go with your gut instinct when handling teams and companies for disaster. So the bottom line is that you can plan. So maybe I did not have an ice storm plan in place, but most of my Texas business friends and leaders, you know, they don't have an earthquake plan in place. Yet many of my Cali friends that are in business, uh, you know, they do. I'll tell you after this week, most of my Texas friends might think differently when we hear ice storm. But you're probably asking me, Trisha, so I don't, you know, I don't get it. How do you plan for the unexpected, the unknown? You know, the short answer is you don't. You know, what you can do, um, because you don't always know exactly what it is that's going to happen. I, I think there's, there's three, like, top things that I, I find that are part of all great disaster plans. And then if you have those in place, while it may not work for every situation and you may have to, you know, hustle and, and, and work through it, um, it can create enough of a basic structure to survive. So let me talk to you about those, those top three parts that I like think are great for a good disaster plan. Part number one, who's in charge? It needs to be clear who's in charge. 
Okay, let's do a quick uh just just bear with me, a quick civics exercise in the in in the order of presidential succession. The president of the United States goes down, the VP's up, right? Okay, everyone knows that. After the VP, it's who? Okay, if you said Speaker of the House, you got it. Then who? President pro tempore of the Senate? Okay, then who? Secretary of State. Okay, maybe some of you got this far, right? Then what? Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary of Defense, and down the line. Now, let's play that exercise out with your company. The first person or team members that come to your mind when you want to form the disaster lead or team, okay, they may be easy. You're like, I already know. They already know. Those are the people, right? Now imagine they're unavailable. Who's next? Okay, now imagine they're unavailable. And possibly even do this by department, depending on your size. Sometimes depending on the type of disaster, those in charge may be, you know, different even. But who has knowledge about what needs to happen? Some of these people, you know, it could be proximity as to why they end up in this circle uh, of people that you're thinking about. Uh, Their proximity to the physical location of the business, you know, um, or, or it could be their good understanding of the operational functions of the business. But one way or another, if, if it's not clear who's in charge, you can easily get into two scenarios, too many cooks in the kitchen or no cooks in the kitchen, where no decisions are being made because the people that make the decisions are in crisis too. So now that we know who's in charge, the number two top part of, I think, any great disaster plan is communication. There should be multiple avenues for this, and and they should already be in place. If you're in the disaster trying to find an employee or team leads, updated phone number or address, you're you're behind the eight ball. I mean, there's lots of different forms of communication. And the other problem is, you know, um, you you need to decide this is the communication we're going to go with. This is what we're going to tell the employees we're going to go with. So when the disaster or whatever it is occurs, the employees know, okay, they're going to communicate with me this way, right? Because it can be chaotic, right, if they don't know. Now, email is not a bad form of communication. I love email uh, to communicate, you know, because I think it creates great documentation. But, you know, much of the workforce, they may not have access to that um, if, if you're really dealing with a disaster. So it's it, while it's not bad, I don't think it should be your primary way to communicate with them if, for instance, they, they can't even get access to email for some reason, right? Now, posting on, on a Facebook page or another social media page not ideal. I mean, if it was all you could do, or if you wanted to, you know, somehow get some type of communication to them, if they were looking for it, you know, you could use it that way. I mean, it's not, it's not generally private, right? But, um, you know, it's not a bad idea to consider it if that's a, if that's going to be part of your plan. Now, posting on a, a portal for employees, same kind of issue with the Email, you know, they, can they get access to it? Are, are the employees going to remember to log in to whatever the portal is? It just depends on whether or not you've created that as, as part of the culture, that they know that's where they go to get communications from you. If it becomes a part of your culture, but if you only use it during disaster, you know, they may not remember to log in and look at that. So I think if that's where you're going to, you know, communicate with them, that needs to be something that becomes a regular part of where they go to get information from you. 
know, calling employees, this would be super awesome and, and maybe, you know, needed actually, depending on the situation. But time, manpower usually prevents this from being a viable option. I think a, I think a great disaster plan, though, um, has the ability to maybe mass text the employees. You know, in some disasters, cell service, like call, trying to call, you know, it could be overloaded. And, you know, it, if you can't, if you can't get them on the phone, right, um, text may be able to be a great option. Don't get me wrong. I do not love texting for communicating with employees. That's not really what I'm advocating here. But just from, you know, I mean, because from the legal perspective, it's easily lost uh, communication and data. Uh, it's, you know, too informal generally. And just, you know, it can be messy uh, from a documentation standpoint. But I do realize that it occurs and people use it. I, I certainly think in a disaster situation, it could come in handy. So how often do you get, you know, the employees to update their info so that you can text them? Is this a yearly thing? Or have you not like updated their, their info since they joined the company? I mean, this is something that could be a really big piece of effective communication with your workforce. The number three top part of a great disaster plan, I think, is the plan for productivity. You know, what can be done to remain productive or if the business is paused due to the disaster, what can be done to become productive as soon as possible? For any business owner and leader of a team, there is definitely a common feeling, you know, they sometimes have when disaster strikes. And, and maybe you felt this. It's like two competing thoughts in your head. You know, you of course want all of your company employees to be safe and you don't, you don't want any harm to affect them or their loved ones, right? But the other part pulling at you is the survival instinct of how to keep the business functioning and productive. I think a lot of business owners and leaders definitely felt frustrated with being put in this position, you know, uh, when there was all those government shutdowns of their businesses, you know, in the in the March 2020 timeframe and after. I mean, here you have this functional business with a team of employees, and now you're faced with furloughing or laying off perfectly great employees, because while you, you know, could try to keep them all on payroll, you know, um, you know, it wasn't maybe the smartest move, right? So uh, trying to make those decisions, you know, it, it was difficult and I think very frustrating. And, and so, you know, because if there's no business, <laughs> there's no payroll, you know, there's no jobs to provide to these good people. And it's seriously a tough spot to be put in both from an economic place and a mental place. But this dual feeling, it's, you know, unfortunately, it's something almost every great leader will be faced with. I mean, you should not feel bad about it. And, and those types of um, thoughts about trying to decide, you know, how, how to best approach it uh, is, is a tricky thing for, for many people to try to figure out. But if you don't focus on the productivity, you know, what are you left with? So some types of things you may be thinking when you're looking at productivity during a disaster is who can telework? You know, that's, uh, certainly <laughs> changed over the last year. You may have been like, I had no one in my office uh, or, or, or business or, or wherever could telework, but, you know, maybe you figure that out now. You know, um, who can physically do what, right? Who physically has access, you know, um, either electronically or not? 
you know, what type of skeleton crew could this company run off of if it had to? Which types of positions are necessary, albeit essential, for that to work? And most importantly, how long can you manage to keep the business going under those conditions? You know, maybe possibly exploring if hiring temporary help is an option or something you want to have access to. Or maybe dual training employees in certain parts of the business. This sort of approach of trying to figure out the productivity issue, it, you know, it's going to change and it's going to vary and, you know, it takes time to develop. But this thought work being done before the disaster can really change how you approach the crisis. So maybe you can't plan for every disaster, but you can make a plan. And even if only part of it is useful, it's better than your habit creature self making decisions, buying toilet paper and bottled water because you have no plan. Whatever your plan was this week, you know, you may make another plan next week and it's never too soon to start creating a plan, even if you had no plan. I, uh, I will probably be making different plans <laughs> after this situation this week. Oh, just, uh, really, but, um, it, it's been a tough week in Texas, I think. And I do have to say that, you know, I love all my fellow Texans and for those struggling out there, you know, hang in there. And I love seeing all the kindness being offered to others. You know, thank you to our good friends who took pity on us and let us come visit and warm up for a bit. But for me, well, I better wrap this legal skinny episode up quick. Okay, before the lights go out again. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Legal Skinny Podcast. Do not forget to subscribe to get future podcast episodes. Also check out LegalSkinny.com to join our newsletter and get details on all the educational resources we offer the employer. Also, disclaimer, Remember, Legal Skinny is for entertainment and informational purposes only, not meant to provide legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. Laws change or they differ by jurisdiction. So also remember, this is not a substitute for seeking legal counsel in your jurisdiction on the current law applicable to you.